0: We're in Jonah chapter 2. We're actually going to start at the last verse of Jonah chapter 1. Jonah 1, 17. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me, weeds wrapped around my head. At the roots of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord, my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed and I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah upon the dry land. Let's pray. Father, you make plain to us that the grass will wither, as we see here in Wichita Falls. And the flower will, flowers will fade, but your word will stand forever. And upon your word we stand. The psalmist says that your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Your word is unchanged and unchangeable. We know from Paul that all scripture is God-breathed. Breathed out by God, profitable for teaching, reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Why? That the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good work. And so we come this morning, Lord, to hear your word and to hear your voice. Father, I pray that for my brothers and sisters here and for myself, that you would guard our hearts and minds at this time. Till up the soil of our hearts that we might receive your word with rejoicing, that it might take root deep and that we would become the men and women that you would have us to be. I beg this morning, Father, that you would guard my lips for your glory and in the name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. Normally, I will start a message with... An anecdote or a story or something that will take us smoothly into the passage but not today (laughs) last week after worship my bride asked me a question with regard to the sermon last week and it highlighted to me uh, something I had missed something important in last week's sermon so we'll start with some cleanup in the midst of the storm in the midst of the storm in which Jonah found himself and the sailors found themselves How do I know if I am the cause of the storm of the chaos or if I am merely being swept along in in something that God is using for his glory that's not necessarily a result of my sin? Why am I in the storm? Is it my fault or is it just circumstances that God is using? Know this, that in either case it's for God's glory and his purposes. If it's for my sin, he's ultimately bringing discipline into my life. If it's for some other reason, understand that you are never a purposeless character on stage. You're not just a bit player in the eyes of God. If he is doing something else, he does have purpose and plan for you in the midst of that circumstance. If it is for your sin, as we shared last week, it is for our refinement. It is for our restoration. Hebrews 12, verses 6 through 11, make that plain. And Peter highlights to the church that we here ought to be a self-assessing entity. If you want a great letter about suffering, First Peter is a great letter about suffering. And in 1 Peter 4, 12 to 19, he addresses why we are suffering. And at the end, he challenges us that really assessment judgment needs to begin in the church in the household of God now we as a church should not look out the world at the world and expect them to be a repentant people but the world should be able to look in here and see that we are a repentant people and so that means are we going to heed what God says so how do i assess Myself within the storm, and I got three ways real quick, and we'll get into the text today. One is you need to have the counsel of conscience. What does your conscience say? Paul writes to the Corinthians in Second Corinthians verse twelve. Our boast is this: the testimony of our conscience that we have behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God and supremely so toward you. Now Jeremiah tells us that the heart is desperately wicked, deceitful above all things, who can trust it? Who can know it? Well, I would say if you're just resting on your conscience by your by itself, you're in a dangerous spot. Your conscience needs to be informed by the other two things. The second thing would be the counsel of the word. I read 2 Timothy 3:16 to 17 essentially in my prayer before the sermon that all scripture is breathed out by god and is profitable useful for teaching reproof correction and training training in righteousness that the man of god may be complete you don't need anything but god's word which is why we preach god's word that the man of God may be complete and equipped for every good word. So the counsel of the conscience, the counsel of the word. Man, we've got to hear the word. And the third one is the counsel of the church. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 2, Paul says, We have renounced disgraceful and underhanded ways in their preaching and teaching. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. Every one of you who is a believer is filled by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit indwells you. And so, if I am in the midst of a storm and my conscience informed by the word and exhorted and encouraged by you, my brothers and sisters in Christ, If my, if these things are clear, then the storm is not my fault. And this is simply God's good purposes that I may not know and understand. Well, when last we left Jonah, God's good and gracious purposes saw him in the teeth of the storm first, and then passing the teeth of a great fish to the fish in a moment. But I'm going to say it, I've said it before, I've said it in the last two, the opening sermons to this series, and they're online if you want to go back and listen to them, that God's purposes and plans are always multifaceted and multipurposed. The storms that we face, the blessings that we have. God's work is not focused rarely on you alone, Usually unless you're swallowed by a great fish so let's look at life inside a fish and let's first address kind of the big fish in the living room isn't this just mythology come on swallowed by a great fish well a couple of points first of all there are legends out there of sailors who have been swallowed by great fish now if you dig into them largely those legends have been discounted. It's almost as though somebody were trying to concoct a scenario to make it look like the Jonah story. To go, see, it happened here. Therefore, it is true that it happened in Scripture. Now, saints, I don't need a multiplicity of stories to confirm to me the reality of God's narrative to us. How many burning bushes have you seen where God is speaking? How many walls fell down? You know, is that a tactic we use in the army today? They drive their tanks around a city and all the walls fall down? No. Once. How many floating axe heads? How many fiery furnace rescues have there been? So, you know, let's, let's kind of set that aside. Oh, there might have been, well, there might have been, but that's almost irrelevant. So the second thing is understand that this is not the only big fish story in scripture. There was this guy who spent the night with lions and was okay until the other guys were thrown in and they were all mauled. There was this, there was this guy who had a mule turn around and speak to him. Dude, why you beat me? There's another guy whose staff became a serpent. And when he grabbed the tail, it became a staff again. There's this other guy who got dinner brought to him, you know, not by DoorDash, but by ravens regularly. There was this other guy who was being tormented by delinquent teenagers and he cursed them and two she-bears came out of the woods and mauled these delinquent teenagers because they were calling him head. And then there's the son of God who, ironically, has a way with fish. Fills fish, where no fish is caught all night long and brings nets to the point of bursting. And on another peculiar situation, he gets the temple tax paid by a fish who happens to have the payment for both Christ and Peter in his mouth. Which takes us to our third consideration. What am I going to do with the biblically miraculous? What do I do with the biblically miraculous? Saints, more and more... Skeptics and Christians alike are dismissing the miraculous in Scripture. It started back in the 1800s in the Tübingen School in Germany where higher criticism began. And they went, you know, we don't see the miraculous around us. So therefore, it didn't happen in Scripture. If there's something strange that happened, there's probably a very natural explanation for that. And if we can't come up with a natural explanation for what went down there, then it didn't happen at all and some guy just wrote it, thought it was a good story. And scripture has been ripped to shreds. Is all scripture God breathed? Is the entirety of God's word true as he says? Well, either it is or it isn't. But understand this: even if I can explain a thing, does that negate the miraculous? I mean, look at the human eye. I mean, you guys can see me; I can see you, and I. You know, it's just it's just dirt, dirt and water. How how does it do that? How do I see with clarity and color and shape and depth? The ear that you can hear different notes different pitches it's not you don't just hear gray the brain a supercomputer like no other let me be so audacious to say that if god does a thing it in itself is miraculous but the miracles of god the miracles of god have no naturalistic explanation god did a work. So are we going to believe the testimonies or will we not? Which takes us kind of to the last point here introductorily about the big fish. Jesus declares this to be true. In Matthew chapter 12 verses 38 to 41, Matthew's narrative reads Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, So will the son of man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. We'll get to the Ninevites next week. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Jesus goes on the queen of the south, the queen of Sheba will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. Jesus states plainly that Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish and came forth. Either it happened or Jesus was wrong. He provides that evidence that he would do the same just as that happened historically in space and time so too will the son of man be in the heart of the earth and rise again he compares to compares himself to jonah as greater he compares himself to solomon as greater a historic monarch So do I believe Jonah was swallowed by a fish and spent three days and three nights? Absolutely. Into the narrative of the story, we see in verse 17 that the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah. The Lord assigned this beast. He ordained it. He prepared for it. Think of Esther. Think of Esther. Esther was prepared For such a time and such a season, as Mordecai, her uncle, tells her. As Esther was prepared, so the fish was prepared. And we see this is going to be the first of four times in Jonah where we see God appoints something specifically to come to pass. Something to happen something to occur. We see that this was a great fish. Okay. So, okay. It's big, wonderful, but was it a fish? Was it a whale? Was it some other sea beastie? Well, there isn't a Hebrew word or there wasn't a Hebrew word for whale. It was like fish, the stuff in the sea. They were fish. Yeah, we have Leviathan as a sea beastie. But whale and fish, there, there was no distinguishing. So what was it? I, I don't know. But it was a great one. It was a big one. We know that sperm whales can swallow giant squids whole. Yee. Great whites have been known to swallow seals whole. Good luck getting by the teeth whale sharks ginormous biggest fish in the sea did he create a different thing i don't think so he appointed a great beastie to swallow jonah and it says he was there for three days and three nights now how did he know that did he have a candle he's marking the wall no he's not going to know that until after the fact after he gets yacked up on the beach and knows that, okay, I went in at this time and it's like, whoa. And when he finds out what day it is, he goes, I was in there for three days. You know, you gotta, you gotta wonder what you're gonna think after three minutes, much less three days. You know, first thoughts, probably I missed the teeth, so that's good. And then you're in there and you're going, How's digestion going to feel? You know, how long is this going to take before I finally am done? And why am I still here? You know, where, is there air? Did God provide air in there? Possibly. Now, I will tell you that in Revelation chapter 9 and verse 6, there are people who seek death but cannot find it. They want to die. They will do everything in their power to die, and they can't because God prevents them from dying. Well, at the very least, in the belly of the fish, for three days, Jonah's got time to think. R.T. Kendall noted that the belly of the fish is not a happy place to live but it is a good place to learn. Saint, know this. Your life is in God's hand. If God can sustain you in places where it is not humanly possible to sustain you, is it any less miraculous that he sustains you even now? Jonah's prayer inside the fish. Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress. And he answered me out of the belly of Sheol I cried and you heard my voice. All right. Next thing. Okay. He didn't have his pen and quill in the fish. He didn't have a desk with a lamp in the fish. So all of this was written afterward. Even says, I called out to the Lord in the, in the first verse. There, but he begins really at the end. It's almost a summation of what went down. I called out to the Lord out of my distress and he answered me out of the belly of Sheol. I cried and you heard my voice. The rebel prophet, the one who had run away, calls out. He had no hope. He turns back and reaches for the one who, from whom he had fled. How often we hear the lie of hell declare to us that God will not take you back after you've done A, B, or C because of the heinousity of that sin. How often we hear the lie of hell that God will not take you back because you've committed X, Y, or Z for the 157th time. I don't care how bad your sin, I don't care how many times you've done it, you have no other place to go. You have no other place to turn. Only in and from the one you betrayed will we find grace and mercy. Only in him will we find forgiveness. Only in him can I hope for restoration and renewal. Jonah called out to God, and he answered me. In the belly of Sheol. Sheol is the, the Jewish place of the dead, the Hebrew place of the dead. Um, it is also like cavernous, the darkness. So Jonah Jonah is in a bad place. Know this, there's no void where God cannot hear. There is no darkness so great that God cannot see. And we can bank on this as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. We have this promise in the Lord Jesus Christ that God hears us. Yes, there are passages in scripture where God, God does not hear the prayer of the rebel or the treasonous. Psalm 66 verse 18 says, if I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. So as a believer, I would argue it's not possible for you to continue cherishing iniquity in your heart because the Lord will discipline you back to that. It will sour in your stomach like bad food. Hosea 5.4 says, their deeds do not permit them to return to their God For the spirit of whoredom is within them, and they know not the Lord. But in Christ, we have certain hope. Hebrews 4.16, I pray this often as we pray together because it is so important. Hebrews 4.16 tells us that because of Christ, let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. The throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We're going to see Jonah call out and reference the throne room of God here in a little bit. So let's dig a little bit into the specifics of the prayer. How bleak was Jonah's situation? In verse 3, says, You cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. This isn't just a circumstance of events. This isn't just the natural flow of events. Just as in chapter one and verse four, we see that it was God who hurled the wind at Jonah. So also God cast him into the deep. Oh, we go, well, no. You saw guys throw him into the sea. Yes, that's true. But it was at God's hand that they did that. In Acts, Peter speaks of how God had ordained that the Son of God would be crucified at the hand of unrighteous men. And ultimately, we know that it is by God's hand that he is smitten, that he is punished. God's wrath has poured out On the sun, we go, well, wasn't that Pilate and Herod and that whole rabble and Caiaphas? We go, yes, but it was by God's sovereign hand. And Jonah recognizes this. And we would do well to recognize this also, that again and again, God will call a violent storm or feast or famine to craft you into the character that pleases him. And still Jonah called on him. He recognizes God's sovereignty. He recognizes God as the only one who can help him. Am I going to hate that one who has brought this upon me? My suffering, my circumstance? Am I going to hate him or am I going to turn to him? You know, I may not get or understand why I am where I am, but the thing that I can know as a believer in the Lord is what Isaiah tells us in chapter 43, verses one to three. God himself says, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, implying you will, you shall not be burned and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord, your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. So Jonah calls out to God in the midst of this. He recognizes an interesting contrast in verse four. He says, Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. An interesting, an interesting kind of juxtaposition there. He understands his rebellion, his treason has brought him to this point. In the depths of the sea, wrapped in seaweed, we'll get to that in just a moment. And yet Jonah knows because of his relationship with the living God, that he will look again upon God in his temple. He's not boasting of his circumstance. He's boasting in the Lord. He is trusting and wholly anchored in the Lord. He has confidence in his relationship with the living God. And so the question is, do you? Do you know that if if an aneurysm were to blow in your brain right now and you would go down that you know today you would see the living God in his glory, in his temple. You can, you can know this, you can be certain. John tells us, I write these things that you may know that you have eternal life. You don't have to worry about last rites. You don't have to worry about, oh, you know, I did this thing. you are redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. And even in my repentance, should God see fit to continue to give me breath, this does not mean necessarily that we will be spared from the circumstances of our action. Uh, Becomes a question whether or not Jonah was repentant. It would seem here in this psalm, that his heart turns back toward the Lord. He doesn't specifically repent therein, but some of the words would indicate that. But let's take a look at the darkness and the depth of the circumstances that surrounded him in verse five and six. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head. At the root of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Anybody ever been swimming in like the ocean and had kelp like touch you from underneath? Like, huh, huh. You know, that's that's creepy enough since you can't like see under there unless you got a mask and snorkel inside. But to be absolutely entwined in it. Like imagine being wrapped up in a sheet and thrown into a pool where the, the, it's all stuck to your face and you already can't breathe and you can't get out and what, what happens in your heart? Panic. Panic. I'm doomed. And then, and then, the most beautiful words in scripture, but God middle of verse six. Yet you brought up my life from the pit. O Lord, my God, what did Jonah do? Nothing. (laughs) He didn't do anything. God did this. God rescued him. This was nothing he could do. There is no good, reasonable, mechanical explanation for why Jonah was rescued. When all hope was lost, he says, I remembered the Lord. In verse 7, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you in your holy temple. Again, my prayer goes out to where God is and he hears me in the depths and darkness of my circumstance. You intercede in the scales of a fish. Some thoughts about when you find yourself in darkness. I'm not exhorting you necessarily to just sit in the darkness. If you can get out of the darkness, get out of the darkness. It's like seeing a tornado coming. You see this big, wide beast coming on you like a freight train. Don't just sit there and go, oh, well, I see what what God's going to do with this. No, get into the cellar. Okay, get into your freighty hole there, as they call it here in these parts. But in the darkness of your storm cellar, in the darkness of wherever you might be, call out to God. Therein is your only hope. Therein is your only rescue. And therein is his presence with you. A couple of beautiful quotes uh, from Elizabeth Elliot about the darkness of suffering in our lives. She writes, The deepest things that I have learned in my own life have come from the deepest suffering. And out of the deepest waters and the hottest fires have come the deepest things that I know about God. John Piper echoes those words almost, almost identically. John Piper says, I've never heard anyone say that the really deep lessons of life have come in times of ease and comfort. But I have heard many saints say every significant advance I've ever made in grasping the depths of God's love and growing deep with him have come through suffering. Elizabeth Elliot, again, she exhorts us saints today. She says that if your faith rests in your idea of how God is supposed to answer your prayers or your idea of heaven here on earth or pie in the sky or whatever, then that kind of faith is very shaky and is bound to be demolished when the storms of life hit it. But if your faith rests on the character of him who is the eternal I am, then that kind of faith is rugged and will endure. And so when we face darkness, oh, that we would call out to him as Jonah does. And we see in the last verses of Jonah's prayer, his responsive heart, verses 8 and 10. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake sake their hope of steadfast love. But I, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed. I, excuse me. Will sacrifice to you what I have vowed. I will repay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Now, Jonah's a mess. Jonah a mess at the beginning of the story running from Almighty God. At present, after he gets spewed onto dry land, he's a mess. He reeks like rotten cat food. He's tattered, bleached, and beslimed, probably. And you have to wonder that after he gets up, does he look back to see the beast slide into the depths? So Jonah is now a physical mess. And we're going to see in two weeks that Jonah almost ends up a bigger mess at the end of the story. But here in the midst of his mess, he considers, well, what would the alternative have been? And he sees the futility of false gods. There is nothing like the living God. Vain idols, what good are they going to do for you in the stomach of a serpent? We're coming up on the anniversary of 9-11. When those planes hit the 90th floor, you've got about seven or eight floors above you where everybody's still alive. I mean, the day before, they're up there on those high floors in the World Trade Center going, man, what a life. What a view, what an office we have, what a job, what money, what power we have. What does any of that serve them on that day? When even firefighters and helicopters can't get to you, to whom will you cry out? If you do not turn to God, Jonah notes, you give up the hope of true love. You forsake the hope of steadfast love. One of the most fundamental needs that we have in life is for relationship. There is nothing that is like the relationship of the living God. Why is loneliness epidemic in a day where you have at access on your phone, everybody and their mother? And we are tragically a lonely people. The fullness of relational satisfaction will not be found anywhere apart from God. Not in your spouse, not in your kids, not in your friends, not in your food, not in your booze, not in sex, drugs, rock and roll, not in extreme living. Oh, I need the adrenaline. Not in your travel, not in your money, not in your work. In God. His steadfast love endures forever. Psalm 136 says 26 times after every point, the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. Nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Why do we not turn to him? Why do we not walk with him day by day even now? And Jonah recognizes the worth of the living God. With thanksgiving, he calls out in his heart, I have no good apart from you. I'm so thankful for my relationship with you. He will sacrifice. I will sacrifice to you. I will fulfill my vows. This is not to pay back. You can't pay back what Christ has done for you. You can't. Not even a little bit. And it's insulting. You know, somebody treats you to a great meal. And you go, okay, you know, here's, here's three bucks. You know, let, me, let me, don't insult, don't insult me. Just accept my gracious hand. Will we commit? I read in Psalm 37 at the start, Commit your way to the Lord, trust in Him, and He will act. But I can't at the same time bask in God's blessings and spurn His commandments. Am I going to call on God in a foxhole and not walk with Him day by day? Part of my sacrifice to Him is my commitment to Him. And will I agree with Him? Will I hold fast to his word? Will I state plainly that salvation belongs to the Lord? It's found in no other name. Will I believe what God has said? My hope and prayer for us today is that we will be spared these things. I'd really rather not go in a fish. I'd I'd rather not suffer. I'd really rather not. I'd rather simply learn the lessons. Let me get all the lessons this way without having to enter into the crucible to learn the lessons through experience. And yet God in his good purposes and in his, in his lavish and great and oceanic grace to us will take us into difficult times. Walking with us each step of the way that we might shine like the sons and daughters of the king that he created us to be. Let's pray. Father God, that we would hold fast to you. That we would not buck and fight against your hand. That we would trust you, trust in the Lord with all our hearts. Lean not unto our own understandings, O God, to acknowledge you in all our ways and know that you will direct our steps. Father, as we go from this place, it is easy to forget and be swept up by the events of the day and of life. But we ask, God, that you would keep us mindful of Jonah in the prayer. We ask this through your grace in Jesus' name. Amen.